0: You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the podcast with myself, Wayne Walker. In this episode, we're gonna be speaking with Luca Corenzo on exercise-associated collapse. So what I wanted to do in the conversation is explore some of the nuances and challenges of exercise-associated collapse, and also look at a recent publication in the Journal of Science and Medicine in sport of an unusual case of marathon-related exercise associated collapse. So this uh, publication was a case-based report with some considerations for medical care at endurance mass participation events. So we're going to explore the case itself written up by Luca. We're also going to dig into some of the empirically proven treatments that form the mainstay of treatments within exercise associated collapse. We're also going to visit some of the reflections on the case and how it's changed Luca's thinking on the list of differentials within Exercise Associated Collapse. So to do this, I have Luca Carenza with me. Luca is an anaesthetic and critical care consultant from Milan, Italy. He previously worked at the Royal London Hospital, Adult Critical Care Unit uh, and also London HEMS and has taken part in some mission work with Doctors Without Borders. He's also a World Extreme Medicine faculty member, and he currently works at the Instituto Clinico Humanitas, um, which is a department of anesthesia and intensive care medicine in Milan. So He also, uh, if that wasn't enough, works as a consultant for iHelp, which is an Italian critical care company designed to cater to mass events. Luca, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me over. It's a real pleasure.
0: I wondered firstly if you could get you to speak to some of the generic challenges of exercise-associated collapse.
1: Yeah, so actually exercise-associated collapse is uh, the uh, most common cause of collapse in endurance athletes, Um, but uh, the key aspect of this specific pathology, because the first key point of endurance endurance running in general is that we do have some specific pathologies that clinicians wanting to work in such events need to be aware of, is that um, exercise acidic collapse is an event likely due to postural hypotension happening usually at the end of the race. So the most common event endurance athletes face, but it's the cause of collapse at the end of the race. So the, key, the first thing to remember is if somebody is collapsing or fainting during the race, then always think something else. So that is a collapse that is still exercise associated, but is not what we usually mean by exercise associated collapse. So that's one of the, one of the key points. Um, the second thing is uh, exercise related collapse influences your the structure, not only your medicine, but also the structure of how you deploy your medical care on site. Um, finish line, I think most of us can Think of a finish line of a running event. For instance, if you think where medals are given, that's usually a few hundred meters from the finish line, and that has a medical reason. We want to have, keep people walking. We want to have, keep people walking because if they suddenly stop, then their venous return decreases, and then they actually have a more symptomatic hypotension, and we have a higher chance of actually having collapse at the finish line. So the first key, public health intervention is, finish line, people need to keep walking and uh, away from the finish line.
0: Could you speak to the case in question? So this was a 61-year-old patient. Could you you speak to what the circumstances were and indeed just unpack the case?
1: Yeah, so uh, as you correctly said when you presented the paper, this is, uh, we entitled the paper, an unusual case of Exercise associated collapse, because what we did was we did a bit of a workup, and we couldn't really find anything from what we call consider a classic exercise associated collapse. So basically, we are in two thousand and twenty-two on April the third. We are in Milan, uh, Milan City Marathon, which is a World Athletics uh, labeled marathon, and um, it's it's a bit uh, it's around I think one it was one forty-eight I think uh, p.m. And a 61-year-old experienced endurance running. And this has a role also because uh, the experience of the runner might actually change their uh, susceptibility to actually suffering certain injuries or illnesses. So he was approaching the very end of the, of the marathon. And basically, a few meters, uh, he actually sort of lost consciousness. I have to add that the, it was a fairly mild day. And the absolute temperature was uh, the dry temperature was 11 degrees. And I say the dry temperature because we often, uh, in running, in endurance medicine, we tend to use the wet bulb globe temperature, which is a, a temperature corrected for uh, humidity and radiation. This is very important. So what happens is, um, I'm at the, that day. I was in the advanced medical post, providing as a sort of critical care physician on standby. But on the finish line, you have walking teams, first aiders, and uh, you know different countries will have different systems, different professional profiles. But we have um, walking teams uh, mostly of what could be an emergency, advanced medical emergency technicians. So we do not have paramedics, uh, but these were not these were like either basic or advanced EMTs. So they were equipped with um, resuscitation equipment, uh, AED, and uh, everything to do a BLS. They approached him, and uh, what happened is he he was found sort of uh, unconscious and gasping. And, you know, for a basic technician, unconscious and gasping equals to a cardiac arrest. So what gets started is uh, chest compressions, and uh, the AED is attached. No shock is advised. So because we, are very, because we are in a very open space, very subject also to public exposure, media exposure, and because there is an advanced medical post, he then gets loaded onto a trolley. Uh, we have military trolley, which uh, the main characteristic is large wheels, makes it easier to go on rough terrains, and get wheeled in into the advanced medical post. We actually get alerted with a cardiac arrest call. So what we are expecting is actually a cardiac arrest. But in fact, when he gets to the advanced medical tent, he's, um, he has a significant self-abdominal, he's uh, breathing by himself, very deep abdominal breathe, breathing. Uh, he's fully unconscious. His uh, uh, pupils are quite enlarged, but his pulse, carotid pulse, is quite unremarkable. So he's definitely not in cardiac arrest. He's actually quite hypertensive at the first monitoring, but he's fully flaccid so quite a lot of different conflicting information for us to to elaborate at the time um, so i think what we what we do is we uh, quickly um assess a few vitals which are fundamental in endurance medicine and uh, among others of all, we do multi multi-parametric, multiparametric monitoring but we especially care about body temperature and also serum sodium. Um, Body temperature, because decreased loss of consciousness and hyperthermia is a hallmark of exercise-associated heat stroke, which is a medical emergency. And changing serum sodium, especially hyponatremia, associated with sport, (coughs) can be a sign of um, exercise-associated hyponatremia, which is a very specific form of hyponatremia that, differently from what we've taught in medical school, is an hyponatremia that requires a fast corrections, because we usually have thought sodium needs to be corrected slowly. So this is sort of the pre-hospital, uh, the first the very first few minutes diagnostics. So he is not hyperthermic. He's normothermic. And um, so we don't give an indication to go with what we call the heat deck. And that's another, I think, um, we can later talk a bit about this. It's, again, goes back to structure and how we actually plan our response when we are in such events. Uh, heat strokes are common in endurance and running medicine. And as such, we need to have um, facilities to rapidly cool uh, athletes because time is brain as we say in other time sensitive pathologies time is brain in each stroke as well so any guideline you'll find will say call first and then transport later
0: how important is it luca to really rule out other etiologies other other pathologies before you um, get to a formative diagnosis and, and on what pathologies are you looking? So you just mentioned some of the more classic cases of hypernatremia. Um, could you could you could you speak to what what you're thinking in your mind to rule out first and foremost
1: before you get to more of an atypical presentation? Absolutely. So first of all, again, I'll go back to the title of the case: exercise-associated collapse. First of all, we need to be at the fin- likely we need to be at the finish line, uh, and they. Uh, to, and it's also an ex- exclusion. Diagnosis. What, what do I mean that especially if this happens on the course? I first want to be sure It's not something we would say more life-threatening And then if our listeners will read the case and we will unveil a bit of it They will see it's, This is more of a medical case But there is a minimum standard that we need to be we need to be to guarantee on the field before we Send the patient to the hospital for further investigations because there are a few conditions that we need to treat on site and these conditions are, okay. of course, cardiac arrest. So first thing I think is collapsed athlete. I will need to check the pulse. And this approach doesn't different in the uh, running setting. Now, we exclude cardiac arrest. We have the typical endurance run, uh, pathologies, um, heat stroke, exertional heat stroke, because we have classic heat stroke, and exertional heat stroke. And uh, one of the things to remember about exertional heat stroke is that exertional heat stroke does not necessarily happen in the heat, okay? So the the, um, air temperature is very important because it increases the risk, it's a risk factor, and you will find tables, graded, color graded tables using the wet bulb temperature which goes from green to yellow to red to black, saying, okay if the temperature today is 25, that's already a red. That means there is a high risk of exertional heat stroke in your population. But that does not mean necessarily that a low temperature and a susceptible athlete will not have an heat stroke just because it's cold outside. So that's always thing heat stroke. Um, What do guidelines say? Rectal temperature. So um, you need to have thermometer. Usually we use digital thermometer with a long uh, soft probe that can stay in place also during cooling because you need to monitor the athlete temperature during cooling. Now, how do we do cooling? There are different ways, and you will find in the literature comparison of different cooling methods. But today, the gold standard is cold water immersion and I would say also ice cold water immersion so with our big um, <clears throat> we, we usually use small inflatable let's say pools which are actually designed for this used or you can use slightly larger um, <clears throat> plastic boxes which are full of water and ice we uh, keep the temperature low. Some studies have been, done, have, have been done with four degrees water. Now on a practical perspective when we're on the field we don't really have a way of keeping the water at a constant temperature, but that's fine as long as you have ice. And then you have a lot of non-technical skills because imagine you're actually submerging an unconscious patient in ice water and you need to make sure you don't drown it yourself. So it requires a bit of an experienced team and you to submerge him while of course somebody's checking on the vitals and somebody's keeping their head out of the water if you look online you can find some videos also of um, easier methods like uh, there's a method called a, the taco method but it's not really feasible for uh, advanced medical post but it's it's good if you're running with friends and you have access to ice just take like a tarp plastic tarp Put the person in the tarp and throw ice from ice packs in the in the tarp with the person, and actually just roll it like a taco. But you can. This is a bit, uh, say, uh, a bit rougher, uh, especially if you're like on the asphalt of the of the area where you have your uh, your advanced medical post. Uh, this is uh, anyway body immersion, way more effective than any water spraying. And this has been tested sort of in a laboratory-based uh, publications. Then the second thing I would, and I need to cool, as I said, I need to cool before transporting. So transporting a, a hypothermic patient with a decreased state of consciousness, these are the two hallmarks of exercise-associated um, heat stroke, is um, suboptimal care. is not gold standard. Second thing is exercise-associated hyponatremia. So any, guide, any marathon medicine guidelines will now recommend for any event the availability of a portable point-of-care device to measure serum sodium. And uh, for most people, that means usually using a portable point-of-care acid base gas ABG cartridge that will not only do serum sodium, but will do a few other things like uh, pH, uh, potassium as well, Depending on the producer, but they're very they're portable machines. Now, this is, I think, what we could say the the most lethal triad. These are the three pathologies that have the highest morbidity. But there are a few other things that need to be excluded, and these are, um, of course, glucose disturbances. But that's fairly you could either have it in your ABG panel, or with just a dextrostick. Need to make sure you don't have a hypoglycemia, and Temperature, when you're measuring temperature for hyperthermia, you're also also excluding hypothermia because that can happen as well. Hypothermia and shivering. Shivering also increases your um, metabolism, increases your lactate. Uh, And then then you have more medical pathologies, so exclude chest pain, exclude causes of um, myocardial infarction or other causes that can cause syncope. But then, you know, those require expedite hospitalizations, not really necessarily a treatment on site. So I would say this is what I would want to exclude before actually loading the patient and sending him to an ambulance, uh, send, and sending him to a hospital.
0: So Luca, this wasn't a case of refractory VF, but if it was, what would you want on site if that was the case?
1: Would you want extracorporeal life support available? Well, you know, there's um extracorporeal life support, or ECLS, uh, is uh, a very interesting topic nowadays. Uh, there is a lot of debate on its utility in pre-hospital, in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest care, and um, definitely it's something that we um, have considered and that we have available, for instance, in, in Milan. and. Um, the reason is there is, um, of course, uh, cost-benefit analysis to be made. But uh, larger events, where there is a, where there is a higher risk of cardiac arrest, um, could probably benefit from having I'd say either you know the ability of doing extracorporeal life support on site, or at least for the medical organizers, a clear fast track to an ECMO center in case of a cardiac arrest. And that's something you need to discuss in advance with your pre-hospital system, your, like your city pre-hospital system, and with your uh, own ECMO centers. So uh, as you might be aware, for instance, in Paris, there is an ECMO team which goes out for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest as a routine. Like, we do not have that. We do have an in-hospital ECMO network for cardiac arrest where a patient gets taken preferentially to ECMO centers, viable cardiac arrests. And uh, because we do have this network in the city of Milan, what we do is we actually uh, take an ECMO team for the day out in the advanced medical post. So what we do is we uh, have uh, them come with their own equipment. We dedicate a tent of the advanced medical post, which is usually a smaller tent, but it's sort of a protected, sterile, sterile cockpit area, uh, where we... Um, We can perform uh, percutaneous cannulation with a consultant intensivist and a perfusionist. Um, Does it have a associated cost? Definitely. Uh, Our personal experience actually comes from a cardiac arrest we had more than 10 years ago where a patient went into cardiac arrest at the finish line. It was actually transferred to an ECMO center and cannulated on site and unfortunately later died and so we had some discussions on whether we could do this uh, directly on site. Actually, for those of you which will be interested in reading the paper, if you basically go to the if you go to the references, reference number one actually is the case report of this um, cardiac arrest we had with subsequent cannula- in hospital cannulation and later death.
0: We'll put the we'll put the paper in the show notes so people can look up that reference and look at that case study actually because I think it would be hugely. Um, informative as you said there's a lot of ongoing work as to where where ECLS sits actually does it sit pre-hospital does it sit in hospital Uh, and the trend at the moment in the UK and and in certain parts of Europe seems to be specialist centres like you said because actually the window of opportunity is 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 narrow pre-hospital and actually if you can get these patients intra-arrest well ventilated to prepare preserve their organ function um, to a specialist team in a specialist hospital that do this uh, routinely it seems to be that that seems to be the way way it's going and so it's no surprise that that's the way it happens in Milan but we'll, we'll add the the paper in the show notes because it is fascinating to see where where uh, ECLS is going. Could you maybe speak to what you found from this 61 year old male, um, both neurologically, um, from an endocrine perspective, and indeed from a,
1: a cardiac perspective? Yeah, so we basically, what I will quickly go back to the advanced medical poster. So he was in a persistent coma. So, what we did is we delivered a pre hospital anesthetic and we sent him to the emergency department. We were actually lucky to uh, take him to my own hospital because I have a hospital based. Job mainly, and this was a uh, uh, destination assigned by the <coughs> dispatch center in, in our own pre hospital system because, uh, in our system, is the, a centralized dispatch center which not only dispatches primary ambulances but also decides the best hospital for the patient based on hospital availability and patient characteristics. So, now we are here, we, we basically arrive to the hospital after what we would say a blue, blue call patient. And uh, I think what, what's the, what things are into the mind of a clinician? Well, um, patient had a collapse, was unconscious, has been intubated. My, I want to exclude, you know, uh, any cardiac acute event. Of course, I haven't mentioned we did a 12-lead ZKG on site, which was, Uh, substantially negative, definitely had no ST elevation or ST depression. Um, So basics that you would do in your own emergency department were repeated. So a 12 lead K G was repeated. And then we have a a choice of diagnostics. And what happens in our specific case is that because uh, we had pre-alerted the hospital, um, we already had a cardiologist in the A&E which then immediately checks the heart with an echo. And I have discussion with colleagues which ask me like, he was unconscious by the time he was very hemodynamically stable, but he had a slightly anisocoria, so the pupils were slightly different in size. So why you didn't go straight to CT? And actually we go to CT shortly after, but uh, we already had a cardiologist with the machine on site and uh, which did a focus point of care, which only took a few minutes and then, so then, I have no right or wrong answer to this point because um, he wasn't in, a, he didn't have a blown up pupil, which then I would have pushed for the CT immediately. He just had a mild anisocoria with reactive pupils. So we had uh, took the time to do a quick echo and the ventricular function, the heart function was actually fine. And then we went to CT. Uh, CT, we, um, did um basal C T and also we did a C T because we could not exclude that of course he had a stroke. Patient is unconscious now and with pupillary changes. So we we felt it actually exclude that we we were not missing anything from from the patient. Uh, meanwhile some blood tests get sent among the others and this is worth mentioning. Most, you know, emergency department like ours works on baseline uh, panels depending on the pathology and so we also uh, measure troponin I, which is usually often elevated in endurance patient and troponin alone are not a marker of myocardial, um, well they are in somehow a in, um, marker of myocardial damage but not in the way we usually thinking of myocardial necrosis and infarction. So. Uh, if you don't have any ECG changes and you have an uh, troponin elevation, uh, you need to have some other studies to actually make sure the patient has not an ischemic problem. And uh, the echocardiogram is the first level because performed usually by a cardiologist because you really need regional motion. You need to check for regional motion and not just the global functioning of the heart. Then we uh, go to CT, and uh, so the neuroradiologist reporting in the CT. The CT is unremarkable. The angi is unremarkable, except for some um, hypodense signal in the pituitary area, and uh, which is suspected for a pituitary bleeding, which is, I mean, a bit unusual. You know, we are like all fa- a bit, I would say, fascinated by this because it's a very unusual finding. So. The patient then gets sent to ICU. Uh, we perform also an EEG, an electroencephalogram, just to make sure that, again, to exclude, again, in our differentials, what are we thinking now? Non-convulsant status epilepticus. We want to make sure patient is not in non-convulsant status epilepticus. And then uh, EEG comes back normal. So overnight, the patient is, um, sedation is weaned and he's uh, promptly uh, extubated. To that point, Luca,
0: patients extubated. What? So my question is going to be, you know, from a holistic perspective, how how important is it to do a full panel of bloods, to do a n- neurological, an endocrine scan, or or, or an uh, uh, you know a, an endocrinological scan, and a cardio cardi- a full cardiac scan as well, both in echo and repeat ECGs and troponins um, post return. But I guess. In a sense, I want to jump to what the diagnosis was, um, but then we, I really do want to look at how important it is, certainly to look at the, the endocrine footprints of a patient, because I think here, it was really quite key that you both looked at the endocrine function of the patient, as well as the, what would routinely be a cardiac, uh, a full cardiac panel, such as the ECG, such as the POCUS, such as, and then a neuro scan. Could could you maybe speak to firstly what was the what, what was the diagnosis of the patient, and then secondly why is it prudent to look at the endocrine footprint of a patient? Well,
1: in <clears throat> this case. The endocrine uh, studies, which were later performed, they were not performed in the emergency department. So I shall actually say that this is an interesting case because I had the, the honor of actually wearing two hats because I had the hat of the pre-hospital physician, and then, okay. and then the hat of the you know intensivist later on, which allowed me to follow up on a lot of interesting investigations. Is that we had um, anatomical uh, damage to. Um, you know, the key area in the brain that is responsible for producing all the uh, signaling hormones that cause the release of hormones in the human body. And uh, pituitary bleeding, uh, it's a fairly rare occurrence, but it can be a catastrophic one because if you lose your, uh, the signaling that stimulates your adrenal gland, to release cortisol in your body, then you'd have like profound hypotension, profound vasoplegic shock. And this was not the case, this was not the case, but pituitary bleeding can be quite clinically devastating. Uh, The colleague that actually was receiving the patient in A&E, because when we brought it in, I was still as a pre-hospital physician, uh, thought it was prudent to administer 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone as a, a therapy. But then later on the endocrinologist was involved over the following day. They have requested sort of a standard bloods, first level bloods for cortisol, thyroid, uh, as well as uh, testosterone and IGF-1, insulin growth factor one. They all were in normal limits and he was uh, doing well. So it was actually concluded that he had no acute pituitary dysfunction, although he was also booked for uh, outpatient uh, ACTH stimulation test, which is a dynamic test. It's something that you give a substance and then you measure the response. And uh, I think without going into the details of every single aspect, what we uh, highlighted with this case is that often, <coughs> you know, specialists tend to focus only on their area of interest, but sometimes patients are a bit more complex than that and I'm not talking necessarily about emergency care because the second half of this case report is all ambulatory based and uh, you know super specialist consultation. Also because you know the endocrine panel wasn't really seemed to be justifying the entirety of the what had happened and also because we ended up downloading the uh, AED data that was connected by the EMTs, uh, because I I think that's a good clinical practice. And it's also a standard of care in, let's say, our EMS system. Anytime we connect an an AED to a patient, then the team has to download and submit the the dump of the AED to the local um, EMS system. um, this has been discussed with the then hospital cardiologist and then the patient was booked for second level testing. Although you remember that Echo was normal acutely, he was booked for um, a cardio CT. A cardio CT is uh, an exams which we see performed more and more because it's a non-invasive way of showing the amount of calcium and plaques you may have in your coronary. And uh, he had an, previous negative stress test. So functionally, under stress he was fine, but with the cardio CT we found that his coronaries were actually quite diseased. To the point that he was given an indication for an elective angiogram. So taken to the cath lab subsequently. Um, And he received actually stenting of uh, two coronaries which is something that we would have not been able to find out only with first level uh, investigations. Now, I'm not going to enter. I've discussed this with cardiologists. I'm not going to enter into uh, all the nu- nuances that are in whether you're going to indicate you know, uh, elective stenting for or medic- versus medical therapy, because that's a whole different world. Uh, but I'd, I'll just present what, what happened to, to our patient. So just
0: looking at this case in, in general fun, fascinating case, because like you said, it's very occult. So it's quite hidden and un- uncertain as to what the collapse was initially. Um, he had a full screen. Um, but interestingly, you know, the, the, the symbiosis of good pre-hospital care. So AD on promptly, uh, good airway management, hopefully oxygen, temperature, full workup pre-hospitally. And as you said, it's not to be taken lightly that actually you should front load critical care services at the end of a race because fundamentally that's when patients are physiologically at their most fragile or vulnerable. So it's, it's prudent to have the majority of, of of care there. But to your point, Luca, about having that symbiosis of good sequential care across the platform. So, and good retrospective data. So downloading the DFib, speaking with the crews, getting a good handover uh, from the crews about exactly what the, I mean, y- you know, you were there in the, in the, in the essence or, or your colleagues were there I- initially, and it's, but it's, it's having that good handover of care because when you're receiving a patient, you want to know the exact details of that collapse. So there's, there's good robust pre-hospital care. There's good handover of that robust care. Then then there's, there's systematic and thorough examination, including an, an endocrine panel um, further down the line, and a, a, a CT, uh, a cardiac CT to exclude the diagnosis. But I think what I'm, I'm notioning at is this robust sequential care across. Different, different trajectories of care. So, pre-hospital, in hospital, and then, and then even further within the medics, and and, and looking at the the uh, ongoing care within cardiology and indeed um, endocrinology. Uh, but But pulling the learning out of each, so like you say, going back to the Dfib, going back to the endocrinologist and seeing what the panel was and and but ha- and having a watchful eye over all parts, and also making sure that the the, the story that the the patient hand over in each part of that is is transferred not only exactly and appropriately but but clearly and concisely so that there's no detail missing across that across that platform and i think this is a really this case notions to that that there was good sequential care and that there was good passage of information across so you could start to exclude 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 to the point where you could get to a robust um definitive uh, diagnosis
1: and to go back to where we started uh, i think this is also inter- this is interesting for the team to feedback also, the, it's very difficult in the setting where you have pre-hospital teams and hospital teams that don't talk to each other. Especially I'm talking about event medicine. Because you know, if, if it's regular EMS, there might be some you know, governance processes. But often events, you have different teams. Uh, and then getting feedback from the hospital, getting, which has a great educational value. And if I can add, also engaging the patient. So this case, this case report was possible only because we uh, were visited back by the patient. And I said, um, actually, I've been thinking about this case. But um, <clears throat> you know, for some time, I didn't really uh, had a way of getting in touch with him. And then I said, when, he, when I proposed the, the plan to him, he was enthusiastic. And he sent me access to all his medical files. Including the consultation they had in other centers, and uh, I actually had him review the manuscript. So I also consider, you know, um, there is way more and more patient engagement into scientific work because patients have their unique insights, you know, into their own experiences, and it's the only perspective that, as a researcher, we should consider.
0: This is absolutely key. Uh, I listen, I, uh, not to stop you in your flow. This is absolutely key that, that 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 we actually include patients within, where possible, within debriefs and within information sharing, and especially if it's a positive outcome, that actually we share learning with patients, and that we it's patient centred care fundamentally. So I just wanted to agree with that point. Could you speak to where you see this case informing? future care so we we, we've just spoken about patient-centered care but could you could you speak to ways in which we share learning with the wider team where we also just how this informs your care for exercise associated collapse so how does this case sort of inform the way you treat future cases for maybe these more complex
1: cases well, first of all, um, you know it keeps the the team updated from a <clears throat> scientific perspective, but also it allows us to reflect on our own internal procedures, which should be a robust approach to exercise a collapse supported by internationally validated algorithms, and this is all sort of things you can find published. But also for me is also in the case the patient goes to a different hospital. Because as I said, I do not decide when I'm on the field to which hospitals the patient goes. It is important to actually interface with hospitals, because different emergency departments might not all be familiar with specific pathologies of, for say, endurance medicine. So it's um, possible that uh, exercise-associated heat stroke is actually mistaken for a fever which is sort of a things that should not happen. I've many times seen patients which were hypothermic taken to the emergency department, and among the treatments, paracetamol was given. Now, if you want to give them paracetamol because they have cramps for the pain, that's fine. But if in your mind you're treating the temperature with a the paracetamol, then that's actually in the guidelines. It's written that there is no pharmaceutical interventions which is working on exercise-associated heat stroke. So, because these are pathologies which clinicians treating them on the field might be more interested, more more um, experienced, I think it's also very important to try to engage and have their hospital on boards that these pathologies have their own specific treatments that they might not see that often.
0: So, just as we come into land actually on the conversation, Luca, could you maybe speak to um, just sharing knowledge with the wider team. So you've written this fantastic case study out and it's got some great learning points in it from information sharing, from voice of, voice of the patient, from actually a more nuanced and complex differential diagnosis, but really digging into all aspects of care really. Could, could you maybe speak to what you'd like to see? Would you, would you like to see more of this type of case study Published and indeed information sharing to showcase um, other centres or indeed more, indeed your own centre sharing more of these kind of nuanced cases to share learning with a, with a
1: wider audience. Well, if I can be um, honest with you, my uh, ideal world research paper would actually be more of a registry of heat exercise associated heat stroke because uh, it's very difficult, it's very complicated, and uh, everything we have is mostly based on either case series. But it's difficult to build a multicentric, international data registry of uh, exercise-associated heat stroke with, interestingly, outcomes. Because we haven't really mentioned the fact that this patient did not have an exercise-associated heat stroke. But exercise-associated heat stroke is known to or at least we are hypothesizing that it can have long term functional outcomes which can be very, very subtle to uh, identify and um, to make a comparison a bit like the concussion in rugby. So there are contact sports, you know, have validated scales to assess concussion on the field and uh, because we know concussion is a long term problem. Now we are wondering is exercise associated with a hit stroke, which can happen to episodes to some <coughs> runners, a long term problem also, because you don't really notice that. Once you've cooled him off, most of the time the cognition is back and you know, at a first level neurological assessment everything is fine. But is there anything more subtle on, ongoing? So that's, you know, more speculative thoughts, food for thoughts for the, the future.
0: Fantastic, Luca. Listen, thank you for your time today. I really do appreciate it. We'll put this paper in the show notes. And so please do uh, read it um, in your own time because it's an absolutely fascinating read. Thank you again.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.